Paul alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Uh, I always like to start with my golden years were between two and four years old. That was when my life was really good and it got bad from that point on. <clears throat> At that point, when I was playing, I didn't have any idea that I could be not playing, so I was just playing, yeah? I had no idea about would I be playing next week, because I had no idea of next week yet. My mother could have been huge and super ugly, and it didn't matter to me, because I had no idea of ugly and beauty yet. My head hadn't become conceptualized, and there was a sense of wonder and awe when I was a kid. I wasn't in an abusive situation or a violent one, so I was at ease to be able to enjoy that state of mind. Then I hit around four years old, and it went downhill from there. I um, started to think, and I started to think about me. And I didn't really know what me was, but I had a strong suspicion that something was bad about me. Yeah? I felt like I had done something wrong before I ever did anything. And so my obsession with self, which we talk about in the big book, is the root of the problem, obsession with self. My obsession with self was on the negative side. So when I went to school the first grade, I walked into the class and I sat down like this. It felt like this, really, because it felt like all the chairs turned and looked at me. I sat there and I was wondering if I was feeling like everybody was thinking about me. And I thought they were thinking about me like I thought about me, which is something's wrong with me. So I asked if I could go to the bathroom, and I left the room. And as I left the room, I stopped at the door, and I listened, because I swore they'd all be starting to talk about me. That is the obsession with self. That, to me, is the root. That is the disease of alcoholism. Yeah? So as I got a little older, I remember I was walking through the hall one day, and I was about 11 years old, and a girl said hello to me. And I went home and wondered what she meant by it for about five hours. Yeah? My head just represented this little, one little event out of hundreds of events of that day with one little person. But I went home and my mind represented it 500 different ways. What does it mean? Am I going to marry her one day? Does she like me? Doesn't she like me? This is the obsession with self. I like to call it selfing because it's a verb. Yeah? That's what the mind is doing in alcoholism. It's selfing. It's looking at life and everything is seen as how it pertains to you. Yeah? That's the difficulty. And it's not something I practice, and you can't really judge your thinking with others because you can't see them thinking. It's sort of like when you walk. I never, wondered, I never went home and watched videos of how to walk better. I just assumed I knew how to walk because I was walking. I felt this was the way people thought. But my thinking is self-centered to the extreme. So everything I see, I see how it pertains to me. I do not see it as it pertains to you. And it gives me, it almost be, causes you to be a sociopath in a way, because I could not put myself in my mother's shoes when I was acting out. I couldn't feel the pain that I was causing in others. I had an immunity to that because of the obsession. So after about, a, now at this point, they talk about the alcoholism as one of the physical sensations and the emotional sensations is irritability, restlessness, and discontent. This was getting extreme till about 12 years old. And I, one night I was playing a game of baseball, something we do in America, and it was a night game. 
And my mother wasn't there. And after the game, a guy came in to the dugout and brought two six-packs of beer. And I had my first athletic, uh, athletic, my first alcoholic drink, and that was the end of my athletic career, really, because I found what I'd been looking for. And my experience is my first solution to alcoholism was alcohol. That's what it was. When I drank alcohol, I got relief from alcoholism. Unfortunately, it wasn't long-lasting relief. I had to keep doing it, and then the payoff-cost ratio would keep changing. I got less and less payoff, more and more cost. So the first thing that happened when I started to drink, I realized I had magnetic appeal to people in uniform. I started to get arrested a lot in where I grew up in Long Island in New York. I started to get arrested. At first, it was just minor arrests where they slap you on the wrist and send you home. But it progresses like the disease does. And by the time I hit 16 years old, I had gotten kicked out of high school, and I lived with my mother in a two-family house. My mother and I, my other siblings had left already, but my mother and I lived on the first floor, and this other family lived upstairs. So I got kicked out of school, and my mother worked every day, so I was home, and I was trying to, I was thinking what I should do for a career, you know, which there weren't that many options. So I figured, well, what I'll do is I can sell drugs, and it could be like a home business. I can sell drugs out of home. Not my home, my mother's home. And so I started to deal drugs. There was a room downstairs underneath her bedroom, a little cellar, and there was a driveway, and you could walk to the side door and knock on the door, and if I wanted to see you, I'd let you in or pay you, you know, I'd sell you something there. So I started to, uh, I painted the room, and I got, uh, I don't know if you had them here, but there was these stars and moons that when the lights are on, they suck up the light, and so when you turn them off, they shine. They did for me, I don't know about you, but to me. And I had uh, Don Quixote picking peyote and Jimi Hendrix posters, and I had my little mono speakers, and I had my little opium den going. And I was dealing drugs and having my friends over drinking and everything. And then one night, I had stolen a, a construction light where I lived. When there was like a, something, some work on the road, they'd have a light that blinks on and off so the cars wouldn't run into it. So I stole that light. And I brought it downstairs. I had seven of my friends there. And I was tripping on LSD. And it was like a cheap strobe light. We were just watching this light going on and watching Jimi Hendrix coming to life and back and forth. And everything was really having a really nice time. And then the cops broke in. Four policemen rushed down into the stairs and came into the room. And I was arrested. I had 1,000 hits of LSD. And uh, that was the first major arrest. I was 17 years old. So uh, they carted me off to jail, and I was in there for four days. I got out and uh, came home. And about a week or two later, I got arrested again. Now, the third arrest, they brought me, and my mother came to the arraignment. And uh, back in America at that time, you would be, when you came into court to see the judge, you would be uh, handcuffed with someone else. At that time, I was handcuffed to a flasher, someone who runs around naked with a raincoat on. <laughs> and he had greasy black hair, I remember that. And I, I get brought in to the courtroom with this guy, and my mother's sitting there watching her son <laughs> with the sorrow of a thousand mothers in her face. And uh, because of that obsession with self, I just looked at her and then just looked away. And that was that. It didn't change one bit of my behavior. Yeah. 
I got out of that situation, and after about five arrests, I ended up to be about 19 years old, and uh, I had been on probation in the court system since for two years, and they, I went to court and they released me on my own recognizance. So my family had a little powwow, a meeting, and they had a majority vote for Paul to take his show on the road, yes, to leave Long Island and move somewhere else, get away from my mother. At this time, it was 1977 in America, John Travolta, Saturday Night Fever. I don't know if you, it's two-way, disco, disco fever. Well, I took my little John Travolta act and I went to Miami, Florida. <laughs> I was very successful for those three years I was there. My idea of success at this point, you know, when you're a kid, you're so full of potential. After a few years of al active alcoholism, my idea of success was not to be arrested. <laughs> Forget about college or anything else. Just as if I don't get arrested, I'm doing really good. <laughs> so I moved to Florida and I spent three years there and I didn't get arrested. So that was probably the highlight of my career and my drug use. In 1980, I moved to San Francisco uh, in the coast. And uh, I was an intravenous drug user also, the whole, the whole nine yards. And I moved to San Francisco, and I pursued my lifestyle for about five years. And uh, my idea of a bottom is when I hit a bottom, I would move in, basically, you know, and put some curtains on it and furniture and ask you over, basically. But the problem was, every time I hit a bottom, I would be get evicted and go to another bottom. And one of the statements we have in America is, uh, when you finally hit your bottom is that you got caught, you couldn't lower your standards quick enough. <laughs> well, that was happened. In 1985, I lived that life for five years there, and uh, I practiced some of the principles of A&A. I was living a day at a time. I was thinking of quite a lot. <laughs> a lot of thinking was going on, living a day. I wasn't living easy does it, no. That wasn't happening. So what occurred is in 1985, I, uh, I overdosed and I ended up in a hospital. And the two policemen were in the room and uh, I woke up around 5.30 in the morning and uh, they stayed there for three hours and then they left about eight for some reason. And then they released me from the hospital about 8.45. And the nurse walked me to the elevator. And if I would have looked at, if I would have seen the nurse's look and taken it seriously, everything may have stopped then. Because she was looking at me like I was in very, very bad shape. But I had the little story of Paul running, you know, no, well, no, don't worry about it. And I left. And I um, went to a friend's house. I borrowed a couple of dollars. I bought a six pack of beer. And I walked across town to where I was living at this street, 48th and Fulton in San Francisco. And the landlady was going to be there at 6 o'clock at night. And I had used my rent money the night before to try to kill myself, basically. Yeah. So I got there at 10 o'clock, and I have till 6 o'clock, which sounds, seems like an alcoholic eternity. Yeah? I kick back, watch TV, you know, drink her alcohol, call, use her phone. And around 5.30, I start worrying about what am I going to do <laughs> when she gets there. So what happened is I left, and I had been introduced to a drug and alcohol program called Delancey Street. It's pretty famous in America. They had a, they had a, a center at the street, 8th and Fulton, about 40 streets away from where I was. A, a girlfriend of mine had dropped me off there a few months before. 
She became my ex-girlfriend as soon as I walked in and found out what it was, but she was trying, basically, getting rid of me. But I knew about it, so I decided I was going to go to Delancey Street. And I went, I walked down there, and I arrived there at 6 o'clock. And when you walked into this facility, they had a bench. And if you sat on the bench, it basically signified you, you, you lost the game of life, basically, yeah? So I sat on this bench, and uh, I'm sitting there, and all these people are running around. And there's a clock across the way and a big desk, and I see the clock. It says 6 o'clock. So I say to myself, I'm going to see these, I'm going to wait till 6.30 for these people to see me. If they don't see me by then, I'm out of here. Like I had no money. I had a lot of important engagements. I had nowhere to go, no money. I didn't have a pot to piss in. But I'm putting a condition on the situation. Yeah? By 6.24, they bring me in a room, and they start asking me questions. And they, asked, they said, do you want a place to stay? Which is why I was really there, just for one night. And I said, yeah, I do. They say, you have to make a two-year commitment. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, sure, I'll stay two years with absolutely no intention, you know. But what happened is they accepted me. By 628, I was a full-fledged member of Delancey Street. So they released me into the mass population, 300 clients and president, vice president, therapist, I mean, uh, counselors and everything. And the amazing thing was uh, Delancey Street was a big enough buffer between me and me. I actually, it's not too, nothing to be really proud of, but I thrive in an institution. <laughs> I'm really good when I'm institutionalized. <laughs> so I went in there, this is 85, and I stayed two years. And in those two years, they, don't, they didn't have a spiritual program. They actually looked down on AA, and actually I'd never even heard of AA at this point. It's amazing. So I started to do what they were telling me to do. After about 11 months in the program, I started to think again, which was not a good idea. And I started to think that I, what was my real problem? And I, I came with, up with the idea that it was narcotics, which it was, yes? But when I made that statement in my head, I put a little like note on the end saying, I could probably drink. Now, I didn't run it by anyone at the program. I just started walking around with this little caveat in my head, I can probably drink. So after 20 months of being there, they offered me a deal. They said, you can enter a workout program, which means you work out for four months, you get a job, they help you save, you get a checking account, you buy a car, and all this stuff happens, and after four months, if you find a place to live, you can move, and you'll be a graduate. So I did that. I, I, I got, a, I got a, a job driving a truck, I opened up a checking account, I, uh, bought a Toyota Corolla, little Toyota Corolla, and I hit the four-month mark, and I started looking for a place to move in. And I found a really nice place in San Francisco. You could see both bridges, and these two young girls lived there. It was inexpensive. I could afford it. And I, uh, and I applied, but there was 20 other people looking to get this place. But at this point, I looked pretty good. I had khaki pants on and a blue blazer. I hadn't drank or used in two years. I like to say my realtor was Dr. Jekyll. You know, they liked Dr. Jekyll quite a lot. But Mr. Hyde was going to be moving in. They didn't know that. And actually, I didn't know that either. Delancey Street had been telling me the period of my life, though rather long, as Dr. Jekyll was over. I mean, Mr. Hyde, but Dr. Jekyll was going to be the way I was from now on. I had a strong suspicion they may be wrong, but I was hoping they were correct. And so I. I entered that house as Dr. Jekyll, and the first night, Mr. Hyde took over. 
because I left the supervision of Delancey Street. That's why when I meet people and they, I ask them, they're in a 28-day program, I ask them what, you, what day is the most important of a 28-day program, and I always tell them it's the 29th day. It's what happens when you leave the program. But what happened with me, I had no bridge to anything else. I was left on my own, and what scared the hell out of me was time. I got off of work, it was 4.30, and I wasn't gonna go bed to 11, and I had no, no one telling me what I was gonna do for the next six hours, and it was a little too much for me. So I started to feel that irritability, restless, and discontentment, and my head started to advertise, and the advertising was what I'd been missing for the last two years. It wasn't specific about what I'd been missing, like getting arrested and shot at and everything like that, it made it more like a romantic missing, you know, like all those wonderful nights alone. <laughs> so, uh, but I bought it. I listened to my head and I agreed and I complied with his wish and I said, all right. It said, let's go down to this bar I used to go to and it used to be called the Rose and Thistle. We used to call it the Nose and Sniffle then. And I uh, got into my Toyota Corolla and I drove down to this bar. Now I have been clean for two years, I haven't drank or used two years. I walk into the bar armed with this idea that I can drink, yeah? I go up to the bartender and I ask for a beer. Being obsessed with self, I'm thinking he's been getting my newsletter and that I should definitely not have a drink, but he doesn't know me from a hole in the wall. I put the money down, he gives me the beer. I start drinking the first beer, two years, two years. I start drinking it and the lights don't come on, the AA police don't rush in, it looks like I have impunity. So I order a second beer. I learned a very heavy uh, lesson that night. And this is how it went. Halfway through that second beer, I wanted more, yeah? My idea of more, it could be anything. For me, it was just more, yeah? Let's say Coke, cocaine. So my mind was already unhappy after halfway through the second beer. And it started looking around the room and the same old English dude that used to sell Coke is still selling. I think he has a franchise there. He's still selling it two years later. He's probably there tonight in America. So I, I bought a little bit of cocaine and I went out to my Toyota Corolla, which I was gonna lose two days later. And I, <laughs> what happens? And I did a line of Coke. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Shining with Jack Nicholson. <laughs> At the end, when he breaks through that bathroom door and it's like, here's Johnny, that's exactly what it was like. I was possessed, totally possessed. And that's what I believe alcoholism is, in a sense. It's like a parasite, literally. And if you've ever been taken over by it, it feels like a possession. And it extremely feels like a possession if you've been removed from it for two years. Yeah? As soon as it took over, I went on what we call in America a run. I don't know if you have it the same term here. Well, there it's very it's a very it's a strange definition for what happens because you start on it starts out as a run but after a few weeks you're walking with a limp usually. <laughs> after a few more weeks you're crawling and after a few more weeks you're dragged back to a place called incomprehensible demoralization. Times about 10 I just spent two years. I went to college, everything. They told me that part of my life was over. It's all going to be nice, clear sailing from now on. And there I was in a worse place than I'd ever been. So what was I going to do? I went on a 10-month run because I had two years of health. And my, my idea when I'm confronted with something is just try to outrun it, really. 
So I had my running shoes of alcohol and drugs, and I just tried to outrun it, and it caught up to me after about 10 months. And what happened is I was in a, I went out on a Thursday, and I sort of basically came to on a Sunday about 70 miles away from San Francisco in a trailer park. I don't know what they call them here. And I was with a person I didn't know, a man, and we were waiting for a mutual acquaintance. <laughs> He supposedly knew someone I knew. I'd been drinking for four days a vodka called Royal Gate Vodka. It's the gate you enter at the end in America. It's about 80 cents a pint. It's very cheap vodka. And I was, I was drinking with him, and I was looking at him, and he had a big bulbous nose and varicose veins, yes? And I said to myself, this guy's a bum, you know? But lo and behold, he was looking at me like I was a bum. And that was the moment of clarity for me. So, something just stopped in its tracks. See, I believe the disease, I call it selfing, is a verb, and it can be startled into stopping. And that's what happened. That moment of clarity startled it into stopping. And at that point, there was like a download. It was like a CNN news story, yeah? No, not a story, just a headline. And the headline was, I'm screwed, yes? Now, everyone who knew me knew I'd been screwed for quite a while, but it was like news to me. It hit me like, I'm freaking screwed. And I didn't have another drink. I left that place, and I went to a phone booth, and I called up Delancey Street to see if I could go back. But they had been following me for the last 10 months, and they said no. They said, you can come back for another interview in a month. That doesn't mean you'll get in, but we'll interview you again. Now, since this little moment of clarity occurred, some honesty had come in, and I said the first honest thing I'd said in 10 months, and that is, I don't think I have a month. You know? I could feel a sense of this is going to be terminal this time. It was just a really bad feeling about it. And so what I, called, what I did is I called up a woman who I used to party with in San Francisco. I asked her if she'd come and pick me up, and I was very humble and very sincere that everything was different now. But it took about an hour and a half for her to drive up there, and I had a, another miraculous alcoholic recovery. I wanted to drink and use again when she picked me up. So I was trying to talk her into buying some drugs and renting a hotel room, getting some dirty magazines and uh, whatever. And uh, I think she had followed that equation many times with me, hadn't been that satisfying for her. <laughs> so she said, no, we're not going to do that, Paul. She said... If you want a place to stay tonight, which sounded very familiar, and I said, yeah. She says, you got to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Now, to me, this seemed like incredible progress because the last time I had that deal, I made a two-year commitment. She's asking for one hour. So I said, sure, I'll go. So she took me to my first AA meeting in 1988, March 21st. It was at a, another rehab called Salvation Army. It was a men's meeting. She just dropped me off and picked me back up at nine. But ever since that point, I've been clean and sober. So what happened for me, the first feeling I got was hope. That's what happened. And it allowed me to feel how hopeless I was. See, when you're getting loaded, you're hopeless, but your mind's not allowing you to feel the hopelessness. Your, your drinking and using is basically how you're trying to avoid the hopelessness. 
when I finally went to that meeting, that could stop and I could admit my hopelessness in a sense, and I felt a little hope by doing that, yeah? And I went, I, she picked me up at nine o'clock and I went home. I didn't try to talk her into doing anything else. I tried to sleep and really the miracle happened when I was asleep because when I woke up, that mental compulsion to escape had dimmed down a little. It didn't have as much voltage as it usually has. And I could entertain another thought and that thought was, I better find call up this AA and find out if there's a meeting. I don't think I can wait till eight o'clock at night. So that's what I did. I called up and they told me about a meeting at 12 o'clock and I went there. That became my home group because I wouldn't have made it till eight o'clock. It would have been, the advertising would have probably sold it to me a few hours. So I went to the meeting and from that point on, in the program it says something. It says in the fear inventory that fear or self, we made decisions based on fear or self that set off trains of circumstances that bring us misfortune we feel we don't deserve. Now when I have misfortune I feel I don't deserve, I get resentful, yeah? I wanna blame someone because I don't deserve this. This <laughs> is a simple mental reaction. And that would motivate me to make another decision based on fear, which sets off more trains of circumstances, which bring about more misfortune, which causes me to have more resentment. And then I make another decision based on the same point, self or fear, sets off more trains of circumstances, more misfortune, more on not believing I deserve it, more resentment, and it's a loop. And that loop creates an unbearability which is the only relief is to get loaded. At least you get a few minutes, yeah? Because as soon as after you cop the drugs or have that drink, you're still in that same loop of making decisions coming from self, which are gonna create trains of circumstances that inevitably bring you misfortune, and you cop an attitude, as we say in America, so you don't feel like you deserve it. So you're blaming people, but that blame isn't pr producing any relief and it gets unbearable, so you're gonna get loaded to get some relief from it, yeah? What happened that day was I made a decision based out of hope, which I hadn't done in a long time. And I listened to what they said, and they said, come back. And I said, okay, I hope you're right. I will come back. And they said, listen, when you come to a meeting, sit in the front and give your attention to the speaker. I said, okay, I hope you're right, I'll do that. And they said, get some commitments. It usually helps you to stay sober. I said, okay, I hope you're right. I'll Take, make a decision. They said, get a sponsor. I said, no, I don't think I want to do that now, no. So, but I started to make decisions based on hope. You know, that's how I began. And they set off trains of circumstances, but now fortune starts to happen to me. I'm not getting arrested, let's call it that. That's fortunate. And what happens to me when I have fortune I feel I don't deserve, I get grateful. That's what happens. It's not particularly me. That's what a mind does. So I started to have fortune that I didn't feel I deserve. I felt I knew where it was coming from, my participation in AA, and I started to feel gratitude. Yes? Gratitude motivated me to do what? To make another decision based on hope. But to me, AA produces goods. It's not false advertising. So I came to believe, see, to me, the second step is just a processional step. You just recognize 
you're being restored to sanity because you're being restored to sanity. It's not a big leap, yeah? So I came to believe that something greater than me restored me to sanity. That came to believe took time. That was the process, yes? So I started to make decisions on hope, but because of the, the, the goods that were being delivered, immediately it turned into belief very quickly. So now I'm starting to make decisions based on belief. And life sometimes brings me misfortune, though. But now I can see the fortune in misfortune. Yeah? Because I'm wearing a new pair of glasses now. Where before, I would see the misfortune in fortune. When people were trying to help me, I saw them as enemies, yes? So now I'm seeing the, misfortune, the fortune in misfortune because it's going to be used in my, particip my participation in AA. Everything about me, everything that I had past judgment was totally valueless, and I, my whole life was, was at the point of just being thrown away. To me, AA is the greatest recycling plant of all, because what you think has no value, if it's surrendered over to AA, it will prove to be incredibly valuable, not so quickly to you, but to others, and therefore to you. Yes? Yeah. So I started to do that. And the first step was very clear to me. I had all the evidence. It was like a giant bonfire. I just needed to know how to ignite it, yeah? And what happened is when I was facing the bonfire, I ran the other way. But AA gave me the ability to look at it, yes? Because it gave me hope and it gave me a, a fellowship and a we that gave me some strength. And that information AA gave me ignited all the evidence. So the first step was obvious, yeah? That I was powerless over alcohol and drugs. And that my life was unmanageable. Now what I found, even though it looked like I was in the total pits, I was managing like crazy out there. And I realized that why life was unmanageable to me is because I'm, I'm trying to manage it. <laughs> That's the point. I'm just not managerial quality, yeah? So when I'm trying to manage life, it seems to be unmanageable. When I surrender it in, in a like, almost like a miraculous turn of events, it seems to be manageable, yeah? When I try to manage again, it becomes unmanageable. It's like the same thing. If you stay in the admittance of powerlessness, you'll never experience powerlessness. You'll never experience frustration, people not doing what you want. You'll never get do this or doing that. You only experience powerless, powerlessness when you exert power that isn't yours. When I stay in the admittance of powerlessness, I'm extremely powerful. Yeah? The mind would never see it that way. Just like in, a, in AA it says you have it by giving it away. Have you ever met one drug dealer that practiced that principle? I didn't. Every drug dealer I met did not give me coke <laughs> and said he had it by doing that. <laughs> what we've been introduced to doesn't fit into the system called self-centeredness. It doesn't make sense. By me losing interest in me, I'll do better. It doesn't make sense. To, to self-centeredness, the more I think about me, the better it will be. But in fact, it doesn't work. I, See, what happened when, so there I went to second and brings you to the third step. The third step, I had the evidence already. I had spent two years, 24 hours every day in, in Delancey Street. 
And when I left Delancey Street, I didn't like them that much, and I didn't like their principles, but I had to admit that my life looked better with them running it than it ever did with me running it. Yeah? I had the experience of the third step that I could, like, I could look around this room and, well, I wouldn't turn it over to everybody, but I could turn my life over to most of you and you'd do a better job of it with, than me. Yeah? I could, you know, a dog catcher would do a better job of it. It's the vested interest is what's defeating you. It's so incredible. You would think the more you would be concerned about you, the better you promote yourself. Actually, it does the exact opposite. The more you are concerned with yourself, the, the more apt to be defeated. Yeah? Because the disease is obsession with self, as they say. So I did the third step. And then the fourth step, I was introduced to it this way. You're going to look at your resentments, your fears, your harms to, done to others, looking at your sexual behavior, yeah? And I did that. But right now, I'm going to share my view of it. It's changed over the years. I don't believe that is... I believe you can look at the inventory in a different light. And the way I see it now... Well, let me just say, alcoholism to me is like a parasite, yes? It's in the mental system. You can't take an x-ray and see alcoholism. You'll see the effects of alcoholism in a body, but you will not see alcoholism in an x-ray. It's not in the body. It's not like cancer. It's not like lymphoma. It's not like the measles. It's in the mental process, yes? And if your sense of being who you are is produced by the mental process, and you have alcoholism, you're going to have what I would call an alcoholic self. Your image of you is alcoholic, yes? Now, in, right before he goes into the inventory process, Bill W., he says something on page 64 in the American version. I don't know where it is in the uh, Swedish version. But he says this. He says, being convinced, which means to believe with certainty, yeah? Being convinced that self manifested in various ways. So manifested means appears, manifested, you know, shows up, yeah? So self manifested in various ways is what has defeated us. So Bill W. separating self and you, yeah? Now, how self defeated me was I'm identified as it. If you ask everyone in this room, did self defeat you, and then say which self defeated you, they would say myself. Myself, 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 myself. I don't believe self defeats us. I believe our being identified with it defeats us. Yes? It's the MY. Because he says it's different there. He says self manifested in all these ways is what has defeated us. Right? We are now, if we're convinced of that, we will now look at its, meaning self's, manifestations in our lives. Now, if you follow this, if self is sort of like a parasite, and self is taking you over, alcoholism, yes? And it's basically using you for transportation, and it's expressing itself through you into what you call your life. Yeah? The next paragraph, it says resentment is the number one offender. So if you follow this logic, resentment is an expression of self. It's a point of view that only self can have and, and see, where he can see threats where there are no threats. 
and produce a resentment. So really, resentment, fears, and harming other people are expressions of self in our life. They're not your expressions. You've taken to be your expressions because you're identified as self. I see self as a foreign entity. I don't call fear my fear. I don't see it that way. It's not mine. It's an expression of something that has saddled me in a way. So let's just view alcoholism as a parasite. Now, you have to admit it's a hostile parasite. If you've ever been taken over by it, yes? It doesn't treat the host very well, does it? It promises a lot, but it basically kicks the shit out of you, really. Yeah? So here's a parasite, and it can't have a life unless it has a host. Yeah? So this parasite of alcoholism, let's say, how is it going to capture the host? It's got to have a damn good strategy, because most hosts wouldn't like to take over. It's very hostile. It threatens the health, the mental, the emotional. It does a lot of damage when the parasite takes over. So the natural inclination would be no to the parasite. But the parasite has an incredible strategy. It, pro it produces a mental image of you and presents it as you. So you become identified as the parasite. And if you're identified as the parasite, you, your mind cannot entertain being free of it. You can entertain getting therapy for it. You can entertain maybe socializing it. You can entertain civilizing it. You can entertain making excuses for it. But you cannot entertain being free of it because you're identified as it. That, to me, is the root of the problem of alcoholism. I'm identified with the disease of alcoholism. I don't have alcoholism. It has me. I'm, take, I'm living under a system of thought and interpretation that is so foreign to way, how I was when I was two and three and four years old. Something took me over. Yeah? You feel it, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel like a possession? It's sort of like, imagine if like you're a horse, let's say, and you're in the stable. And then the jockey that's ridden you into the ground is coming in. You'd be a little bit afraid, yeah? You'd be kicking and everything. No. And the jockey starts moving towards you, and he's talking to you. Oh, don't worry. It'll be different this time. Oh, no, no. It'll be, no, no, don't worry. And he starts petting you, petting you. And he's talking to you, talking to you, talking to you. But then he gets his leg over you. Now he's talking as you. Isn't that the case with alcoholism? It's entertaining, it's producing and advertising. Maybe we should get a drink, maybe we should get a drink, maybe we should get a drink. It's like, who the hell's convincing who? Where, who's it, isn't it sound like, who's it convincing? It's talking as if it has to convince you to do something as you. But as soon as it's convinced you, it talks as you, not to you anymore. Now you're not thinking about getting a drink, you're getting a drink. And if you know, as soon as you surrender your arm, alcoholism does not have an arm to reach for that beer. It does not have lips to drink it. It has a desire for that fuel, yes? But it can't shop. It can't go to the store and go, hey, can give me a beer. It has to do what? Convince the host to get the beer against tons of evidence that it's going to kill the host. It's unbelievable. So it runs in advertising, and it starts, let's say it's a long advertising. Some, it takes a while. So let's say you're at work Monday, and the head's telling you, 
This also blows my mind. Let's say you're at work Monday, and then you come home Monday night, and by 8 o'clock at night, your mind tells you you had a bad day. Wouldn't you? But you were in the day the whole day. Wouldn't you know it was bad when it was being bad? Why are we on like a 12-hour time delay so the mind breaks the news to you? Oh, you had a bad day. Oh, yes, master. <laughs> then you call up other people. Hey, did you have a bad day? I was just told I had a bad day. Yeah, I did have a bad day. This is insanity. We're out to lunch. We're unconscious. That's what the host, the parasite does. It causes you to be unconscious. So once I go to work, and so I start thinking my boss is going to fire me by Friday. I have no evidence that he is, but my mind starts thinking, yes? And I start looking at everyone else at work, and it looks like they're conspiring to fire me, you know? And, I'm, and then that night I call up my friends, and they tend to sort of agree with me. Tuesday I go to work, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to be fired by Friday now, for sure. So now I'm looking at the boss, fuck you, you know, fuck you. So then I just leave middle day Tuesday, don't go to work Wednesday, and I get fired. <laughs> so what happens is for me usually the mind may take one second may take a couple of days may take a couple of months but it always brings me to a point that I call fuck it yeah once you go fuck it it gives you a solution let's get loaded let's sleep with my best friend's girlfriend let's rob that bank and they always sound like a great idea yeah as soon as you get, say, let's get loaded, and as soon as you pick up the beer and you put to your lips, the genie's out of the bottle. Now, you thought it was bad up here, it's going to present itself out here. Yeah? Maybe you were having trouble with your relationship, now you're on stalking charges. Now you've been, they've been arresting you, you've been sitting outside your girlfriend, who was never your girlfriend's house for eight hours. The mind just goes bananas, and then you're stuck in a level of consequences. And so even when you come to, you're beholden to all the actions that occurred when you were loaded. Maybe a divorce, maybe going to court, maybe probation, whatever, yes? The payoff is so minimal, and the cost is so high. For me, what occurred is... So here, let's say we're all in this room, and we are, and we're sharing. If we came in and this was an AA meeting, what would be happening would be people would be sharing their thoughts and their feelings and their reactions to life, right? That's what we would do. And then I would share my thoughts and my feelings and my reactions, and there would be a sense of identification for some people. But my experience with that is I'm not identifying with who you are. I'm really identifying with what's taking you over because the same parasite's taken me over. I don't care if it's in Sweden, Australia, India, I've been to meetings in a lot of places. The same, we have the similar feelings and thoughts and reactions to life because they're not our feelings and our thoughts and our reactions, they're alcoholic feelings and thoughts and reactions. And to me, that's the solution. When I see it as not me, I can be free of it. I mean radically free of it. Not maintaining a spiritual condition, but realizing I am a spiritual condition. It's totally different. Yeah? So this happened when I was about nine, ten years sober. And I'd been doing workshops since I was three years sober in America. And I used to do fourth-step workshops and show people how to do a fourth-step inventory. 
But after I started entertaining this, I lost interest in that because it seems so radically clear to me that I'm not self. And so every time someone was giving me the directions to look at my resentments and my fears and my harming done to others, that was the act of the root of the disease. I was in the busy claiming the expressions of self as mine. How can I expect true freedom if I keep capitulating to the disease, even when I'm practicing the solution to it? I'm practicing it as a self. Yeah? You don't know you're identified. That's the dilemma. So here, it says in AA, perhaps there's a better way. Yeah, there is a better way. It says trusting something infinite rather than finite self. It says, why do you have so much fear today? And thank God he doesn't let us answer because it would be a giant story, you know. It says, isn't it because self-reliance has failed us? What is self-reliance? It's relying on the idea of being a self. And it's an unreliable system. And our lives are demonstrating the unreliability of what we've been relying on. AA is offering us a better way. But the trick with this is, if you're identified with the problem, when you practice the solution, you'll be practicing it as the problem. Therefore, what the solution, that's why a lot of people, they don't have a recognition of, you will cease fighting everyone and anything. That you'll be placed in a position of neutrality with no thought or effort on your part. That the problem will not exist for you anymore. These things, everyone identifies with the de descriptions of the problems, but they're not identifying with the descriptions of the solution. What a solution is that when the problem does not exist for you. To me, it's the problem does not exist as you. That's the solution. I see the problem as something foreign to me. Yeah. And I believe freedom is the end point of AA. Not maintenance, but freedom. You know, it's great to do fear inventories, but I want to get to a point where I don't have any fear. So I don't have to do any inventories. Yeah, it says it. It says you can begin to lose the fear of today, tomorrow, and hereafter. We, we can outgrow that fear because we grew into it. We grew into it, this idea of being a self. We didn't have that when we were two years old and three years old, and yet we were seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, touching. We were living, but we weren't living as Paul. So something occurred. Paul, in my case, that building of Paul by the mental process had alcoholism in it. So I was an alcoholic self, which made it very unbearable to be a self. I want to get freaking relief. So I don't care how many times you stop me. See, for me, the alcoholic of my type, I was willing to pay any consequence tomorrow not to feel uncomfortable now. I didn't give a shit how many times I got arrested. As soon as I got out, I got loaded again. There was no stopping me because the unbearability of being identified as what I'm not needed a solution. Unfortunately, it was telling me the solution, which was its fuel. Yeah, get loaded and drink. It's loving that. That's like it's Wheaties every day. Jeez, you're feeding it constantly. So I don't know. For me, uh, it's been a radical departure in some sense. Like it says in the book, a spiritual condition, your daily reprieve from alcoholism is based on your spiritual condition. So let's say I'm identified as this, yeah? Self. So this is what I think I am. The best I can do is try to graft spirituality onto this. 
yeah? Which means you have to really work at it because it's not a natural take, yeah? You're a body that's farting and shitting and <laughs> with instincts and everything like that, and you're trying to become sublime and saintly, you know? It's freaking pointless, yeah? But if you are a spirit, yeah? If you truly are spirit, then why is there a need to try to graft spirituality? Just recognize your spirit, not this, and that to me is the maintenance of the condition of spirituality, is recognizing you are spirit. All day is this maintenance. All day, every second. It's like electromagnetism. It's creating itself. You're awake to the fact you've had a spiritual awakening. You're awake that I am not this, but that. And that, just entertaining that, is its maintenance. You just live it instead of practicing it, yeah? You don't need to go on retreats. If you like retreats, go on them. But you're living it when you're going to the retreat, when you're at the retreat, when you leave the retreat. <laughs> you cannot get away from the spiritual condition. You are that, for me. And so my concept of a higher power changed dramatically over the years. It became like it's always available at all times, right where I am, with no requirement necessary to meet it. I don't want a God of my own understanding. I want a God of its own understanding. I don't want a God of my own understanding. I will frame it too small. Self will tell me that's God, yes? I want a God of its own understanding. It will reveal its nature to you as you're living the spiritual condition. And you'll see a concept of it is so, so dry. It's like a, like a, it's like a skeleton. There's no flesh and bones on it. But when you're awake, it's a living mechanism. It, the awakeness maintains the awakeness, yeah? So, because if not, what am I gonna, my condition's gonna be based on doing what I do and what I have. And who's gonna tell me if I'm close to God? My head. Who's gonna tell me if I'm far from God? My head. Isn't your head telling you where you're at? If you went to a meeting, it gives you permission to feel all right for a few minutes. If you don't, if you missed a meeting, no, terrible day. <laughs> There's a big statement in AA. Quit playing God. Have you ever seen that in the third step? Quit playing God? It says, to, and it says the how and why of it, meaning the whole program, this is a very comprehensive take of the program, is quit playing God. What's playing God? Your head. When you wake up and it tells you what the day's going to be like, isn't that playing God? Isn't there a day that's going to be like offered to you moment to moment? Your head says, fuck that. I'll tell you what it's going to be like. It's going to suck. Yeah? So you just, it's like reading the menu. You never get the meal. A moment's going to reveal second after second, moment after moment. You go, oh, I know what Monday's going to be like. It's going to suck. And Tuesday also. Actually, my rest of my life probably. Yeah? It's playing, that's called playing God. I mean, what else?